Hey, I'm Scott from Seattle. I'm Holly from Chicago. Hey, I'm Josh Stevenson from Moscow, Idaho. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Before we get to my conversation with Greg Fitzsimmons, let's hear a little bit of his stand-up. And, and we, you know, we adopted a puppy recently because we felt like, you know, and rescue. You got to rescue. Did you rescue? Yes? Did you rescue? That's wonderful. So many animals are put to sleep every year. You go in, you're a hero. You walk in, and they're all looking at you. And you just go, I'm going to save you. <laughs> Bring them out. And they're like, not so fast. First, fill out this 45-page document. Name, social security number, income, level of education. If you and your wife divorce, who gets custody of the dog? I don't know. We never talked about it. Thanks for planting that seed for us. (laughs) And then they send somebody to the house, home inspection. Did they do a home inspection? Yes. They come to your house, and they look around. How would that feel at the end of it if they're like, yeah... We're just going to go ahead and kill the dog. We think it would be best for him rather than to live the way you and your family do here. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is the comedian Greg Fitzsimmons. He's not only one of the nation's most popular stand-up comics, having appeared on basically all of the venues that are available to stand-up comedians, including multiple Comedy Central specials, almost all of the late-night shows, and uh, more. He also has his own uh, talk radio program on Sirius XM Radio, The Greg Fitzsimmons Show, his own podcast, Fitzdog Radio, and he's the author of the new memoir, Dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons, Tales of Redemption from an Irish Mailbox. It's not just the story of his life told through his words, it's also the story of his life told through uh, a giant file of disapproving letters uh, that his mother kept. Um, from his elementary school days all the way through his uh, career as a stand-up comedian. Uh, Greg, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's uh, an honor to be here and in, in good company with some of my favorite comics also, so I appreciate you having me in. Well, I should mention that there are a lot of stand-up comedians here with us right now. Yeah, it's a lot like that uh, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, uh-huh. except with comedians. Yeah, absolutely. We're, it's, it's radio. I've always considered myself a radio Edward Hopper. <laughs> Something about the desolation of the American urban landscape. Staring into a coffee cup, looking for that next punchline. You captured perfectly. So um, tell me about how you happened upon the sort of stash of materials uh, upon which this, this book is built. I guess about, uh, God, about 10 years ago, I'm looking through the basement, my aunt's basement in the Bronx, and I've got boxes and boxes that are stored, and I find one that was uh, my mother's that was filled with letters. And I, I was curious, yeah, a little bit inappropriate. I start going through them, and she had saved every time the, a letter was sent home from school. There were two reactions. They would open it up at the dinner table. Uh, you know, Irish dinner, so it's like a lump of mashed potatoes that were pink because of some bleeding meat laying next to it. 
and my dad would be, you know, smoking a cigarette and, op- and he'd open up an envelope. And if it was funny, because the best is when the teacher quotes you <laughs> and then and then sends it home to humiliate you. But what they didn't understand is my, if my parents found it funny, we all laughed and you were off the hook. <laughs> and then the letter was saved. And then one day you publish it. <laughs> so I got to thank my mother for this, even though the book actually goes deep also because it's about authority it's about doing the opposite of what you're told to do and about the american psyche and uh, you know our whole creation myth is about being rebellious and as an irish person it goes back to the old country too so it kind of tracks how i became somebody who always did the opposite of what he was told and where it got me your book is full of these uh 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 original source materials um, first, first person. Uh, what is the what is the AP US history uh, source documents? Um, and uh, uh, I want you to read this disciplinary disciplinary notice uh, from Washington Irving Junior High School <laughs> in your hometown of of Terrytown, New York. Um, this is from 1980. How, how old are you? How this old is are eighth you? grade, so I guess I'm about uh, 13 or so, and. Uh... Starting to hang out with the bad kids at this point. I went from hanging out with the nerds to uh, gaining acceptance through from the cool, tough kids by being the funny one who would do crazy things. So, <clears throat> description of incident. Greg was loitering in the hallway on Wednesday with several other students when I walked by on my way home. Greg then began openly mocking me by making fun of my name, i.e., the grass looked very dewy this morning. Oh, you have to know his name is Dewey Ekdahl. <laughs> Do we have any homework? And are we going to learn the Dewey <laughs> Decimal System? At first I ignored him, but eventually I felt I needed to take some action. It is disrespectful and rude to address a teacher in such a manner, and I think it best to bring this to his parents' attention. Signed, Dewey Ekdahl. What I love about that uh, what I love about that thing and what I was laughing out loud at is that those are really, I mean, those are dumb jokes even <laughs> for an eighth grader. <laughs> like, they're so epically dumb. So dumb. And, and yet, when I, I was in a band then, we had a band in seventh and eighth grade, and I played bass, and we wrote our own songs, and one of them was Dewey Ekdahl. And, <laughs> and it was the, all those jokes put into verse. And uh, yeah, it was. We had we had a very da da sense of humor back then. It was like Uncle Floyd was very big in the tri-state area. I don't know if you ever watched that, but we watched a, you know Pee Wee Herman type sense of humor. It was it was just anti-authoritarian kind of Marx Brothers, and it was just it wasn't about the quality of the jokes as much as the inappropriateness of them. That's what I mean. That's what's so wonderful about it is that that series of insults. Really, the content is completely irrelevant to what's going on. And in fact, I think the the content is so intentionally like there's no you're not you're not swearing at him or you're really making sort of like 1946 quality humor. Yeah. Um, And it's it feels like such a thing that's just about you making the point that you can and will continue to make jokes at his expense indefinitely. And especially when, by the letter of the law, I have not insulted him. <laughs> you know, there, you leave yourself as, as thin of an out as you have left yourself. It does exist. And a lot of the jokes we did, I can remember, 
we were learning uh, phonics at that point, and there was a board with, you know, multiple P's to show the different way. And we were up there to spell different things. And I spelled a curse word. But the curse word has another meaning. <laughs> and so I, there, was the, there, there was that tiny window. And so the teacher was angry, and she screamed at me, I know exactly what you mean. My friends were falling on the ground. But I knew, so what are you going to say? Take me to court. There's another. There's another meaning for that word. Your your description of your um, high school years at this uh, at, at this sort of fancy. I mean, anytime you have a day in the name of a school, I feel like you can safely assume it's a pretty ritzy operation. Yeah, ba- Barbara Bush graduated from the school. Um, eighteen seventy four. I I really like started imagining basically sort of like a a more wiseacre version of Max Fisher from Rushmore, <laughs> especially once you described founding the founding the golf team. As far as I could tell, essentially so that you would have a venue for drinking. Yeah, you can't golf without a drink in your hand, and it it was um. It is odd because I think when you write a, a memoir or you're seen as a renegade, you associate somebody who's, you know, James Dean, jeans and a T-shirt, and he's kind of poor and he's wrong side of the tracks. And I think the point that the book is trying to make is that every American, no matter what you do, in some way you have to you have, to have uh, within you some part that feels rebellious. You know, whether you're a school teacher that, you know, after school goes off and uh, shoots guns at a range. Or, you know, you, you're you um, some some type of a, a priest. Uh, well, bad example. And so I think for me it's it's about showing that, yeah, I did grow up upper middle class. I went to a good school. But at the same time, I was completely an American and an Irishman in the sense that I would I could not be told what to do. And if you did, you faced... Anger, violence, uh, you know, dissension, and and it was about collecting people to do it with me. That's part of it. I think individual rebellion is one thing, but the American version of it is, no, we're going to get a bunch of people, and we're going to throw the tea in, into the harbor. I um, I had a, a high school English teacher uh, named, and I, I was a very, uh, frankly, very poor student um, through middle and high school. Myself, um, I had a I had a high school English teacher who once wrote a note on one of my papers um, that said, "Jesse, I'm worried about you. Is there anything in life that you take seriously?" <laughs> At what age is this? This was when I was about. I'm going to say 16. I don't know a 16 year old that does. <laughs> And I, um, I, I showed it to my mom mostly because at that point I, I had sort of divorced myself from the idea of academic success, and I kind of thought it was funny, I guess, that he would write this because he was seemed genuinely sad. Yeah. And I showed it to my mom. She, um, to her credit, I think, sort of flipped out and said, "Like, wow, this is really not an appropriate thing to write on a sixteen-year-old's paper." And she went in and and sort of took the took the English teacher to task in a in a meeting. Um, and, and that was like, I remember that very distinctly, like that was a really big moment in, in my life. And, and you have a really similar moment, uh, that you share someone, one of your high school English teachers writing something on your paper. And I wonder if you could read that. This was a guy who, uh, I, I compare him to Donald Sutherland in Animal House. He was kind of that, uh, 
hippie-ish teacher who was a real academic and who was deep, but he also had a, a kind of a romantic side to him. And I had written, I had rewritten as part, every paper I wrote in school, the only way I passed was to try to get creative because I could not possibly put together a linear study of the, the Battle of the Bulge. So I would write something funny and usually charm my way into getting at least a C- minus on it. So in this one, it was a, it, I re- rewrote Act 2, Scene 2 of Romeo and Juliet, the, the balcony scene. But I did it in modern times as, as two Guidos, and he's, his eye rock is around the corner, and she's, uh, she's up in the second story of the, of the tenement. And so the comment he wrote on the paper was, while I'm not quite sure this demonstrates a profound grasp of the scene, I have to admit it's funny. Did you ever think of doing this for a living? And it was like, I think literally, because I was never a good athlete. I clearly had not been doing well in school. And this was the first time in my life that I went, wow, somebody who is in a position of authority just um, confirmed something that I had wished for, you know, something that I felt like there was a spark. I can read. I can write. I am funny. And now somebody who I really respected was saying, go for it. And I never looked back. I mean, literally from that moment forward, I felt like, you know what? Mr. Jones said that I can do this for a living. And I don't need anyone to tell me that. And I think it's that kind of conviction that it's, you have to have that to make it in a business like this. And it, to me, I felt like I guarded that comment. And I found it in other teachers in college because my confidence began growing as I got older and I started actually be, I suddenly started playing sports in college and I was good. I was like, "Oh my god, I've always been good at this. I just never had confidence." And so, uh years later, I he tracked me down. He read I there was a piece in the New York Times about me when I had a show on MTV and he he looked me up and he got in touch with me and he remembered the and get a picture of a teacher that's got how many classes coming through every year? And we're going back 20 years now. And he finds me and he remembered that I had renamed the character Crustacea from, I, forget, I don't even remember the book. And, and it was so touching that it, was not, it wasn't a one-sided thing where, oh, maybe he just encourages everybody. Like He really was somehow, he found something in me that he remembered and it was that much more meaningful to know all these years later that he really meant that. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Smith Micro Software, makers of Stuff It Deluxe, designed to move files simply and securely wherever customers want them to go. For Mac and PC, online at stuffit.com. Coverage of the world of comedy on The Sound of Young America is supported by Humber College, offering a two-year program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funny. More information at HumberComedy.com. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Greg Fitzsimmons. He's won multiple daytime Emmys for his uh, writing on uh, the Ellen DeGeneres show. Um, he's been on uh, more or less every uh, late-night talk show and has had multiple Comedy Central specials. His new book is called Dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons, Tales of Redemption from an Irish Mailbox. So 
When you were just about to finish high school, you had your first what would loosely be called stand-up comedy gig, and you managed to get the um, microphone turned off and, and have to yell the second half of your set. Um, uh, tell me, tell me about that experience. Well, yeah, we're I'm 17, and there, there was there was a little bit of uh, substance issues <laughs> going on before the show. And I went up, and, and I was mostly doing uh, Bill Cosby and Bob Newhart chunks mixed in with uh, making fun of the teachers. And specifically, there was a Western Civ teacher that was having a longstanding sexual affair with the art teacher who was smoking hot. And so it was a great little rumor that was, I think, pretty corroborated by the fact that every time there was an overnight field trip, the two of them would chaperone it. <laughs> and so we, um, so I started doing jokes about them, and they were in the audience. And that's when all of a sudden I thought the mic was broken, and I look over, and the principal's standing there, with the other Holding end of it. it up in the air like you were in like Ferris Bueller exactly. or something. It could not have been more of an image from that. And it just, and I looked at him and he's smiling at me and then I just smiled back. I put the mic down and I screamed the second half of my act. And I can remember walking off stage and out the side door uh, to the outside. And I can remember literally yelling at the top of my lungs like I could not contain the joy that I was feeling at that moment because I had wanted to do this since I was, you know, seven years old. I'd memorized every comedy album, and it was everything that I hoped it would be and, and more. You, um, I would say a solid, like, 20% of the letters in this book, and it's a book that's full of source documents, um, are from... Uh, people who had hired you to perform um, had asked, had made some request of you, um, like don't swear or something like that. And then you had gone on stage and spent the first chunk of your act uh, complaining about and defying uh, whatever that request was. Um, there's one that's in the intro to the book, and I wonder if you could read a little bit of it. Um, it it's actually a letter to your booking agency. This is from a uh, high school prom show. I was on the road doing a lot of colleges, which is I did a ton of colleges when I was starting out. And mixed in, my agent asked me if I'd like to do a high school prom show in Iowa. I didn't know Iowa that well. I didn't really know the Bible Belt very well. And I got there, and the, the entire senior class was getting off a school bus because they'd gone to church prior <laughs> to the prom beginning. And I'm immediately looking at that, and I'm looking at these kids that all have short hair, and they're all nice, and everyone's white. And it struck me as, wait, this is prom night. And I'm thinking of my prom night where there was drugs and booze and trips into the city where, you know, there was a lot of sexual – I mean, American Pie. I mean, what is the prom? It's your last gasp of rebellion and being wild. And then I get this principal who pulls me aside and he tells me not to be a wiseacre up there. <laughs> so every button has now been pushed in me. And comedy to me is it's anti-authoritarian. You do the opposite of what you're told. It's the definition of comedy. Here's what's expected. And then you step on a rake. So I like to just don't be a wiseacre. Yeah, and I don't even know what a wiseacre is. I never <laughs> heard the phrase. I'm thinking I'm out here in the country on a farm. He's talking about acres. So so the, this was – I got a standing ovation, and then my agent received this letter and forwarded it on to me. And I was initially really upset about it. And then 
to let it out, I started reading the letter on stage and eventually did it on one of my specials on Comedy Central. Dear Ario, we held our high school prom this evening, and our entertainment was comedian Greg Fitzsimmons. Let me be very frank. Mr. Fitzsimmons' performance was one of the most humiliating, embarrassing, and degrading performances I have ever witnessed as part of a high school activity. (laughs) What makes it most unforgivable is that before his performance, he was told about taboo subjects, language, etc. by Dr. Sam Dixon and myself. Throughout his performance, he frequently referred to the do's and don'ts of our discussion. He apparently thought it humorous to do exactly the opposite of what was instructed. His jokes about having sex with his grandmother, inviting the class to his motel room for a keg, his talking candidly about the glories of cocaine and other grossly inappropriate subjects too numerous to mention were unbelievable. If this is the only way he can be humorous, he and your whole company is sick and should be embarrassed to market such filth. We try very hard to raise our children properly and give them values. If you are questioning whether I am a Bible beater, no, I am not. (laughs) I just feel that what we try so hard to instill in our young people can be dashed in one hour or less by some quote-unquote comedian that can leave town after doing his damage. High school prom, by the way, in that first sentence, is in capitals and underline. (laughs) Yeah, there was a lot of uh, syntax... That was really uh, showing the anger underneath. Like, he had to write this letter. He got some heat. He was CCing a lot of people on this letter. <laughs> and he had to show outrage. Um, I get the impression that you have not abandoned that part of your ethos that suggests that should someone ask you not to be a wiseacre, the appropriate response is to be as much of a wiseacre as you can muster. I, it's not as much. I mean, the truth is I have gone to a lot of therapy. I've been sober <laughs> for 20 years. I try so hard. And there's just a part of me that feels like the truth. That's my truth. I am here. I'm a gadfly. I mean, I am an archetype. I'm comedians by by definition are supposed to challenge. And when I see comedians and I work on TV shows, I write on TV shows and I'm in rooms with people that are just doing exactly what the network wants them to do. They're providing just formulaic crap. And then when I try to uh, put stuff in that's different, that's edgy, it's, it sneaks through and it's why I'm there. And I'm thinking, why am I the only one here that's trying to – I've been on a lot of staffs where I felt like there was a lot of sublimation of anger, of point of view, because the money was there. And the truth is, for me, I feel like the money is only there because I'm being who I am. And I think that comedy today has become very toast, It's become very commercialized. And if you know, and in my personal life, I just there's something I have to honor as an Irish person. When somebody cuts me off, I need to give them the finger. <laughs> and if somebody you know is mean to my child, I need to take them and put them against a tree and explain what's going to happen to them. And I can't stop that. Something that's come up on this show before that that I think you you write eloquently about in the book is that there is a there is a style of comedy that is um, in large part about um, about saying we are all in this together, 
um, about saying, you know, whatever the whatever the uh, venue for that is, you know, it could be, hey, do we all remember when this happened? Like that was crazy. You know, the Kool-Aid man was crazy, whatever it is. Um, and then there are comics who seem to pride themselves on a singularity of point of view um, and and almost bending the audience to that point of view, bringing every single person in that audience on board to something that is so distinctively and personally them. Yeah, I mean, people say, well, what's a good comedian? What's a bad comedian? And I really think that it's such a simple definition for me. It's a good comedian works from the inside out. A bad comedian looks out at the audience and tries to determine what they want, and then they give it to them. And I think for me, the comedians I watch, like Bill Hicks and uh, you know George Carlin, they go deep inside, and they live a life where they are processing what's around them in their own way, and then they're communicating that to an audience. Now, I'm not saying you should be up there being preachy, and I'm saying, first and foremost, you've got to make a crowd laugh. Those are the tools you learn at first. You get you get your you get your tool belt by going out and paying your dues and paying seven, eight, ten years on the road. And out of that you start to come up with material and you start to come up with confidence where you can only go to the well of how do what makes me uncomfortable, what makes me embarrassed, what makes me angry. And then you have to go up and and connect that to people in a way that I'm not trying to convince anybody of it. And I'm not trying to condemn anybody, but I am up there trying to say, here's my truth. This is how I feel. And some of the best people I consider the best comedians, I don't agree with anything they say. And I will stand in the back of the room and watch every second they're on stage. Greg, thank you so much for taking this time to be on The Sound of Young America. Well, honestly, it's an honor. I've been looking forward to this, and uh, keep doing this thing, man. You, you, you really uh, you're, you're got my world out on, on the airwaves. I love hearing all of them. Thanks, Greg. Greg Fitzsimmons is a stand-up comedian. He's the host of The Greg Fitzsimmons Show on Sirius XM Radio, uh, Fitzdog Radio, the podcast available in iTunes. And his new book is called Dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons, Tales of Redemption from an Irish Mailbox. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music is provided by Dan Wally. The show is edited by Nick White. Our producer, Julia Smith. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can download all of our programs, 1,000% for free, or subscribe to our free podcast in iTunes. If you'd like to know what I'm up to on a day-to-day basis, and let's be frank, why wouldn't you? You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash youngamerican. We'll talk to you next time, right here on The Sound of Young America. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.